Are we there? Yes? No? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So I got to actually, this will be the second time preaching this message as my wife actually came out to the living room this morning and sat down. We were in our robes and she's like, can you go through the message with me because I won't be in church today since I'll be with the kids? I'm like, sure, babe, I'll preach to you. So I got to preach to my wife this morning. and It was cool and great. So good, good discussion, good talk. So um, something that I want to read over you guys, though, and this is something that once again, I think when we are generating context here through 1 Corinthians, and I'll kind of go back over that, is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be of joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Paul's emphasis here and what he's going to go into in chapter 4, and once again, to, to get a little bit of context again, if you guys haven't been here um, with us throughout the first couple chapters, is Paul is preaching and, and teaching and, and revisiting a church that he planted in a, in a town called Corinth, which once again, to just sum it up, is the, the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. Um, anything and everything went there for the most part. So once again, as I said, you can use your imaginations on what that looks like. Just try not to go too far into your imagination of what that looks like. Um, a lot of crazy stuff went on in this, in this town. Um, it was a, and I love this term, so I, I like to say it, a goulash of just certain experiences and spiritual practices, sexual things, and all of that stuff. So um, imagine the work that Paul had um, set forth in front of him to go there and to plant the church and to, as he uses in, in previous chapters, lay the foundation, which is Christ crucified, right? Which he says is a stumbling block for Jews, but foolish to Gentiles. Um, Jews, because Jews had this preconceived notion of what um, the Messiah would look like and what the, the, this mystery that Paul speaks about would look like as well, that their Messiah would come triumphantly in, in saving Jerusalem, probably riding on this like black stallion with the sword. He would be a king and all that. But as we read, the gospel is everything but that. Jesus was the son of a carpenter and he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay? This did not sit well with the Jewish people in accordance to the law and the Old Testament, which they read. And then the Gentiles, they saw it as foolishness because Christ crucified also means Christ resurrected. And to them, that was nonsense. We're too wise to sit there and believe and think that this individual actually died and rose again on the third day. That's just, that's a little bit too much for us to comprehend. So the Gentiles had this practice, which you guys probably, if you and Jelaine's group have gotten to this point yet, we'll read about, I believe it's in Acts chapter 17 or 18, where there's this common practice where the Gentiles like to gather up in this place called Mars Hill and they like to debate and talk about all the new things going on in the world, the new practices and the new wisdoms and thoughts and perceptions and stuff like that. This was just something that they would do. And Paul would sit back and listen to these individuals debate and talk about certain things. And then he would intercede and say, listen, I've heard you guys run your mouths. I've heard you guys say all these things, these outlandish things, but I'm here just to give you a simple message. And that is that Jesus Christ came to die, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles. And on the third day that he rose again. Okay, so this was something too that, that was also encompassed and, and followed up behind with the power of the Holy Spirit. So in, in the midst of those individuals hearing this news, this good news, they became saved because they believed. So and we read about Paul in the previous chapters, how he didn't come with words of eloquence, he didn't come with wisdom, he didn't come with you know, beautiful hair and makeup and all this cool stuff and optics to when he spoke, he just simply spoke boldly and powerfully the, the Word of God. He wasn't the greatest speaker. It was just the message and not the man that had the power. So going into chapter 4, though, he's wanting to now lovingly deal with the individuals of this church that are now questioning who he is. And how so familiar of a feeling that can be as a pastor, right? It isn't it isn't that we stand up here and think that we're perfect. It isn't any of that. But the, the, the irony of this that Paul is dealing with is, is that 
in my authority and in my apostleship, me being Paul, the great apostle, whatever, I came and appointed you in the positions that you're in. And now from your position in which I appointed you, you now question who I am. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Like, wait a minute, I put you in this position, but now you're judging and questioning me. So Paul's going to go into this in chapter 4, which, once again, it goes back to what I just read to you guys out of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where Paul's wanting to emphasize, like, as a church, we're called to submit to the, the leaders of our body. We're called to do that. We're called to trust in them. And I've spoke to you guys and said, yes, there's a questioning component. You guys are, are called to an extent to test the things that are said, the things that you hear. Don, you brought it up once before. I have a responsibility for the things I speak, but you guys as a body have the responsibility for the things that you hear, right? And there are biblical ways of testing this stuff. In the church, we're called to call and judge sin amongst each other, like we are as brothers and sisters. We're called to do that, but there's also a right way of doing that, and there's a wrong way of doing that. And Paul's going to emphasize and hit on both of these. And I don't find it ironic that going into this, when he wants to lay this or rehash this out too with this church, that he's also going to, in chapter 5, he's going to begin dealing with some tough situations in the church. Sexual immorality, incest. Things that people have kind of just taken in as common practice amongst the church because I like to do it. Feels good. Culture says it's okay. Why can't the church do it? And he's going to lovingly call this stuff out and speak about it. But we are going to just go through chapter 4 here, verse by verse, breaking this down. I want to say it won't take too long, but I also don't want to lie to you. So, Starting off, verse 1, chapter 4. The nature of true apostleship. This can be looked at as apostleship. This can be as discipleship. I've spoken this to the men numerous times. As church leaders, as a pastor, as a deacon, as an elder, whatever. As these men come into the church and, and they are raised up and they are put in positions of leadership in the body. It isn't that they are supposed to just be seen like, okay, Chris, you're just supposed to be that way. Brandon, you're just supposed to be that way. I don't have to worry about it because these two got that on lockdown. They are the good guys of the church and I'm just going to come in and just... No, they actually are examples to me as another man of how I am supposed to be. Does that make sense? So they are displaying to me the attributes... The, the characteristics of what a godly man should be. And I'm called as another man, even a woman as well, to, to look at these men, not just the pastor or the, the, the preacher on Sunday, but these other men that are in positions of leadership and go, okay, they're doing what I'm aspiring to do and to be. I want to be under these men when it comes to their, their teaching. I want to have fellowship with these men. So Paul is laying this out here and what it looks like when it comes to the nature of true apostleship, true discipleship. So what I want you guys to keep in your mind, though, is, is this is also something that we can stop and think and look out, even for you women as well, of what it can even mean to be a Christian, too. Because he's really wanting to emphasize and hit on that as a leader of the church. Because the leaders of the church, once again, it's not that they're just called to, to do and you're called to just sit back and observe. No, they are in the midst of their position, in the midst of their maturity in the faith. They are called to feed into you so you can continue to grow. So we can all reach, as it says in Ephesians 4, that level of maturity, right? The measure and the stature and the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's all our lives are. So you guys sit here and beat yourselves up like, man, I'm not where I should be at yet. Well, yeah, but give God glory that you're also not who you were yesterday as well. Amen? So this is the stuff where Paul's wanting to emphasize that. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those who have been entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, some of your Bibles where it says servants may say ministers. Does any of your Bibles say ministers? Okay. Nikki says ministers. This word servant, the word minister, 
is not the same Greek word that's used earlier on in this book where Paul is making reference to this, to where it's almost in reference to like a deacon, like someone who just serves the church. The Greek word that is being used here and the, the root of this word servant is actually that of, how many of you ever watched like the old war movies or even like where they're in battleships and you see the guys down like on the third row and they're rowing the boat to get the, it's like they're down, I mean, they're down like in the nasty muck part of the boat. Like it's the job you don't want to have, right? And you got the big burly dude walking through and he's whipping everyone, making sure they're rowing. Because if one guy's not rowing, then it's kind of causing everyone else to have to row that much more. The word here, servant, that is being used here in the Greek is in reference to that term. Almost like a third level boat rower or slave. So it gives you a little bit of context here of what Paul is saying, how you need to regard us as. So once again, keep in mind in context how he's wanting to dwell away from the mindset of how we're called to be these big, popular, well-known, whatever, um, pastors, preachers, servants. He's wanting you guys to say that you ought to regard us basically as like these slaves for Christ. Like, we're working. We're working hard. As those entrusted with the mysteries, God has revealed the mysteries, once again, that Jesus didn't just come to die for the Jews. That he didn't just come to, to save Israel. That he actually came to die for the whole world. Gentiles, right? Everyone. As the mystery of God that you'll hear Paul um, utilize or refer to throughout the Bible. Verse 2, he says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. What he is saying here is simple. Once again, to go back to what I said, in the church, we're called to judge and to call out sin. It is not the most comfortable thing to do as a pastor. It's not the most comfortable thing for you guys to do as brothers and sisters in the faith. You're called to do it in love, right? It'll bring about a sense of conflict. Conflict's not always the most pleasant feeling, but it can lead to growth, as it should lead to growth biblically. But what Paul is sitting here saying, though, is, is that when you find yourself or put yourself in this haughty, proud position, maybe you're not having fellowship. Maybe you're just all about the world and the ways of the world, and then you're coming into church and you're pointing at other people and what they're doing and saying the pastor and pointing and doing what they're saying. But you have no real like fellowship. You have no biblical context to come and to approach them about the things that they're speaking or teaching. Paul's sitting there saying, like, I'm not concerned about that kind of judgment from you. And he's not saying it to be arrogant. He's not saying it to be a jerk. He's just simply sitting there saying, like, I know what God's laid out in front of me to do. And that's what I'm called to do. And I'm going to continue to do it. So he's wanting to emphasize that, but he also goes into, and this is something that I want you guys to think about too. I care very little if I am judged by you or any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. This is a biggie, and this is what we struggle with as Christians, I believe, a lot. Paul's sitting here and he's saying that I can't even judge myself because if I sit back and I examine myself too much, the Bible says in, in Corinthians that we're called to test ourselves in the faith, to see where we're at. But if we put ourselves in this position, in this place where we're doing like this deep self-examining of just ourselves and we're not relying on what the Bible is saying for us to do, how often have you guys, when you examine or judge yourself, you either are too harsh on yourself or you're too lenient? I mean, it's a big thing. I, I speak from experience as well. Sherry, you could sit there and try to judge yourself and how you are as a Christian. There's two ways that you're probably going to do this. You're going to beat yourself down and just think you're a ridiculously horrible Christian, or you're going to justify every sinful thing you do in this world and just go, oh, God's going to love me anyways. This is the mindset that we have. And Paul's sitting here saying, like, I don't even judge myself. I can't do that. I just know that I have to rely simply on what the Word's telling me to do, rely on the Holy Spirit in advocating and empower me to go through this and, and to continue to, to push through as a Christian. He goes, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Basically, what he is simply sitting there saying is, is that 
Even though you and I maybe are doing what we feel like we're supposed to be doing and our conscience, we're okay, we can't get too boastful and proud of ourselves and think, man, we're just some amazing Christians. Like we're hitting the ball out of the park every Sunday, every day and all that stuff. There are still things that you could be doing in your life that are sinful that you don't even know about yet because your level of maturity and discernment isn't there. The things you're participating in, the thing, the people you're, all these things, you could just simply be just justifying because you don't know any better. And Paul's sitting here saying, as far as my conscience goes, it's clear. I think I'm all right. But I also know, and I'm not dumb enough to, to, to disregard, that I could still be doing things in my life that I just don't know about yet that's actually sin. And there's a purpose why he says that, and he goes on to it in the next, in the next verse. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He lets us know once again, going back into the previous chapter, the day, capital D, do you guys remember what that meant? Judgment. I heard it. I just heard someone whisper it. Okay? He's letting you know that there's only one perfect judge and there's only one perfect judgment. Who is that? The perfect judge is who? And the perfect judgment is when he comes back. So he's saying, stop trying to judge all these things based off of all this weird stuff that you're, you're around and you're about. The Word of God will help guide you in that. The Holy Spirit will empower you, advocate for you, minister to you, teach you truth in the midst of that. But perfect judgment and judgment alone comes from God. And when judgment day comes, this is a big one. And I said this to Jelaine this morning and she sat there and she goes, oh my gosh, I never thought about it like this. Because in the past, I'm going to be honest with you. When I read this verse, I always thought it to mean something more adversely, but this really doesn't mean that. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. When I read that to you guys, what does that speak to you? Do you guys instantly in your mindsets think bad? Like, he's going to expose like where our motives are at. Like the badness, like, okay, I'm doing all this good stuff as a pastor, but inside, like, there's these bad motives. He's actually not referring to it that way. Remember last week we spoke about and said that you guys as Christians, you guys will be judged. Not judged in regards to heaven or hell, but you guys will have to give an account for the things that you say and do. It's in the Bible. I gave you guys numerous texts to go through to talk about that. There'll be a day where you're standing and the Lord's basically kind of replaying everything you did and didn't do as a Christian. Good things. And also things where maybe you kind of just sidestepped and you're like, oh yeah, like oh, I remember that person. I felt like the Lord was telling me I, they were just a little weird though. And I just, you know, those things. So Paul's sitting here saying, like, he'll bring the light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. He's not saying punishment. He's not saying any of that. He's letting you guys know, like, we've been saved from sin as Christians. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are saved, right? By grace and grace alone. But he's wanting, you to, remind, wanting to remind us, though, too, that there will be a time where what the things that are hidden in darkness will be brought to light, that the motives of our hearts will be exposed. Why is Pastor Josh standing up here on Sunday preaching every week? Why does he do the things that he does? Does he do it so he can collect my tithe and offering? No, I don't. But all that stuff will be exposed on a day that's yet to come. And this is stuff that isn't supposed to be bad news for us. In a sense, it's supposed to be good news as Christians because guess what? You are saved, right? You are. You're, you're, you're not facing judgment in the sense of what the unsaved in the world is facing. You're just facing a, a different kind. In verse 6, he starts out in saying, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. I looked this up when I, when I came across it. I, I've always assumed I knew what it meant. And from what I've read from different expositions and different teachers and preachers, it's kind of all around the same thing here in regards to just the, the diving in and the text of this of do not go beyond what is written. It is basically saying don't add to God's word. Don't do anything that tries to sauce up the word of God. And Paul's kind of hit on this already in the previous chapters, right? 
about the, the preachers and teachers that love to come with this fancy words and the way they look and it's all energy and all this. And we love that, and, and especially in the West, like the optics of things, like rock star preachers and pastors, right? And in and, and the optics of things and in the emotion of things, I can start saying some goofy things and you guys are just that, that little part of your brain, right, that, that kind of helps de- decipher logic and the things that you're hearing is completely taking a nap because everything's emotion. And I got you guys going and rocking and rolling and I'm saying stuff and you're not even really perceiving it. And I'm just adding on to what the Word's saying, but the Bible pretty much lets you know that you cannot add to God's Word without taking away from God's Word as well. And Paul's sitting here saying, like, we are applying this to ourselves so we can show you and teach you that don't ever add to the Word of God. And he goes on to sit there and tell you even why that is. He says, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over the other. So we sit there, right? And we associate ourselves maybe with some of these individuals and these teachers that we think just know it all, right? This is a big battle in the church today with YouTube and all that stuff because we have people that think that sitting at home and maybe watching something and not being in the gathering is just as good as this. And it's not. It isn't. You're actually called to come and to gather. You're called to actually sit under people that are leaders or authority of the church, but they're only in a leadership and authority that's given to them by Jesus Christ because the head of the church is who? Jesus Christ. It's not Pastor Josh. It's not any other men that I assign or, or, or in the future put in a position of, of eldership or leadership. It's like, no, we have an accountability to lead and to shepherd you guys, but I'm not the head of Agape Center. Jesus Christ is. And we're all looking to the same head. But it's easy to where we can sit there and I listen to this person. Why watch this person? Did you hear the sermon from this person last week? Well, that person pales in comparison to this person because of, did you see how they did this? These are things that Paul is emphasizing and saying, like if we fall into that mindset, we can then become puffed up just like the leaders are that we follow because we associate ourselves with them. And I'm not saying, once again, that these aren't things that we can't use for our growth. I think it's amazing that the Word of God is out there and that people can access the Word of God more readily than they've ever been able to before. Lord knows I've taken advantage of it as well. However, there's also a danger in that too. There's a lot of weird stuff out there, guys. A lot. And when we fall once again into the optics of things and how things look and even the emotion of stuff, we can just sit there and put validity on it like, well, look at all these people. Or look at how they do this or say this. Paul's once again just sitting here saying like, it's not about the messenger. It's about the message that they speak. That's where the power is. They're removing themselves And they're allowing, as Paul says, I believe in chapter 2, for the power of God to work. Because they're not getting in the middle of it. Then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over, over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Once again, he's hitting not only the church, but once again, the leaders. He's kind of giving this reference to himself. All of us at one point in time heard the gospel spoken to us, right? Someone spoke God's word to us. We received his word and his good news. We can't take that on and think that we, in a sense, generated it within ourselves to be able to go out and do whatever we want with it. And this is something that Paul is wanting to emphasize here. It's not on us to take this in and to sit there and own it as our own. We have to remember that we received it from someone else and take it as such and then to go out and share it amongst the world as well. Here he gets a little, a little, uh, I guess, cocky with stuff, if you will. He gets a little sarcastic. In verse 8, he starts out with, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. 
How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we may also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. Here's some context for you guys. In Rome, when the soldiers would come in from war after conquering some land or some place, the soldiers were not allowed right back in the city limits. But guess who were? The generals, the leaders of the people that were out on the campaign. They would come in, and there was, in a sense, this procession line. So it would be like Curtis and Jaime, right? You guys are coming. You're the generals. You guys got your swords. There's blood all over your swords and stuff like that. And they're watching, and the crowd is ooing and eyeing at these two individuals. We've come back to proclaim that we've conquered, that we've won. But the soldiers, the other soldiers, the ones that are under you guys, are outside the city limits. They're basically waiting for you guys to get your glory, your due, and all that. Then next in the procession line comes the soldiers. They come in, people acknowledge them, maybe the crowd has dwindled down a little bit, right? You guys took all the glory for yourself, everyone loves themselves, some, some Jaime and, and Curtis, and then when they leave, they're like, oh, just the soldiers are coming. But at the end of the procession line, guess who comes in? How many of you guys have seen the old gladiator movies, right? Like with all the animals that come out in the arena, right? The games and stuff. These are the prisoners of war. These are the individuals that are then ushered in last. Okay? They're basically just simply brought in and people could hang out. They could throw stones at them. They could yell at them and curse at them. They know where they're heading. They're heading to the arena. They're heading for the entertainment now of the Romans to basically just sit and watch them die. This is who Paul is referring to themselves as right now. Like, obviously, we've been left at the end of the procession to be brought in because you guys are just so wise in everything that you're doing. Like, people love you guys. You leaders that preach and teach the way that you're doing it, people just fall. So we're just going to come in at the end of this procession line, taking the position that obviously we're supposed to take, and that's just of like prisoners of war that are just set to go into the arena to die. So are you guys getting the context here of what Paul is really trying to speak to this church? Like they are falling under a lot of individuals that are just claiming this sense of wisdom and that they have it all and know it all. And once again, this is stuff that we can align with today's church, especially in the West. Guys, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, on Sundays where this place is packed compared to Sundays where it's empty, there's that part of my flesh. Feels pretty good to talk to a church full of people. I'm not going to lie to you. More people usually leads to a sense of comfortability amongst you guys too, right? There's more interaction. When we're singing praise and worship songs, it's like, okay, I know my horrible voice will be flooded out because I got five other people next to me who have horrible voices. So I'm more inept to maybe sing a little bit louder, right? These are the things and the motives in which help us even decide on what church to go to. Like, this is too intimate. You're too close. It's too quiet. Like, I actually could fall asleep in here if Pastor Josh wasn't speaking in a certain way. Like, this is how this feels to me right now. And, and Paul is emphasizing this. Like, easily we could make this, I could make this about me. And change that. And it could be just the snowball effect. Like people could drive by and go, man, what's going on at Agape Center? They got that parking lot packed out. Oh yeah, you go in there, they got techno music playing and strobes and all that stuff. Like they're they're getting it. This is awesome. Different messages. All this stuff being teached and preached, but once again, Paul sits here and he says, What foundation has been laid here? What is being spoken? Is it Christ crucified? Or is it Pastor Josh or the music or whatever? And, and this is something, once again, this is thousands of years ago that they obviously were dealing with. He goes on to say, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. And this is something I broke down to Jelaine and said, do you know that angels, when you read throughout the Bible, angels only know so much on what they're allowed to know. They are literally ministers of God's word. Like they come and they send messages and all that stuff. They only are taught or told what they need to know. 
So in that, their understanding of who God is is based on their observation of how God is to us. So when Paul makes this reference here, and it's the way that the world is too, how are people going to truly know who God is without the body of Christ? How is God? Well, if we go out and we teach and preach that God's going to always give us everything we want, he's always going to heal us, he's always going to do this stuff for us, God sounds like a pretty appealing guy. I want me some God. But Paul wants to emphasize and say, you know, like, you know, we've been made spectacles to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. So you want to watch and see how God is with his followers? Look at us. Look at us. This isn't about Paul. This isn't about Apollos. This isn't about me being put on this huge stand of glory. I'm actually like a third-level rower on a battleship that's getting whipped. Like, like, this is the conflict, though. He's speaking, in essence, the conflict that us as Christians will face to a fallen world. Body of Christ, church, when you read through the Bible, how can you not expect conflict from the world as a Christian? How can a world that's falling around you not run into conflict with you as those who are being sanctified daily? So Paul's wanting to emphasize that. Like, listen, we come into conflict all the time because of our faith and our belief. He goes on to say, we're fools for Christ. And this is where he starts to get, I I can envision Paul here like, Maybe the Jesus part of him was coming to a little bit of a stretch here. Because once again, to be judged by people that you put in position after you've gone through what you've gone through. Guys, we write about, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about all the stuff he went through as a Christian. Beaten, shipwrecked, like imprisoned, flogged. All these things that he went through as a Christian. Like he went through stuff. For the word of God. For the cross. And these individuals that he appointed into a position are now judging and calling him out, questioning who he is. I can only imagine that he goes into these next few verses that Paul was a little angry. Sarcastic, as we'll read, but angry nonetheless. And I can see where he had to stop himself. So, Vision this with a sarcastic overtone as I will make sure that I read it as such as well. We're fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. Paul, everywhere Paul went, Paul didn't get a salary for being a pastor or an apostle. He worked where he was at. He was a tent maker. He did certain jobs to be able to make money to help pay for the food that he needed to eat. All these things. This is stuff that he wanted to emphasize here. So he worked with his own hands. He labored. When we are cursed, we, when we, are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When I read through that this week in my studies, I cried. No joke, I cried. Because I'm going to be honest with you guys. And I want you guys to give me an amen or raise your hand if you've ever been in this position. When you do things for individuals that you perceive as good, I'm not saying that you guys sit here and think that you need to get someone to pat you on the head for doing something nice, right? Maybe some of you do, right? I know sometimes men, we can struggle with that. We do something nice for our wives. We want to be acknowledged for it. But sometimes I just sit there and think, you know, even in not hearing anything, that's how I was raised. I had a dad to where if I wasn't getting yelled at, I was doing something good. That was good enough for me. I didn't have to have a dad to sit there and wait, good job, Josh. Like, if he wasn't like yelling at me or telling me I did something wrong, I was happy. I was content. 
But doesn't it add a sting to it that, okay, don't acknowledge it. But man, it hurts all that much more when you get cursed for doing something good. Or the good deeds don't even get recognized and it just seems like the ones that you're doing that seem to be or perceived to be as bad are the ones that always get brought to light. How many of you have experienced that before? Like you could do nine amazing things for an individual. None of those things get acknowledged. But the one thing maybe you fell short on, maybe you just didn't, it wasn't that you did anything bad, you just didn't do it like you did the other nine. That's the thing that gets talked about. That's the thing that gets brought up on why you're inadequate. That's the thing that gets brought up and why, man, that's why I struggle to be around you. That's why I question you. The other nine don't mean anything. It's just this one thing that, in all honesty, you didn't do anything wrong. It's just the other nine were just, and those things didn't even get acknowledged. They know you did them, but this one thing, and you're getting persecuted for it. That's hard. When I read that passage, we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. That tells me as a Christian that the one thing that maybe I'm getting picked on about, I need to expect as a Christian. I need to expect that. I need to step away from the pride of things in my flesh where I can easily get caught up in thinking, man, you know what? Even though I don't want to get acknowledged, I don't want to get cursed. No, as a Christian, I actually need to expect the cursing. I need to expect the slander. Because it's not about the action that makes the difference. It's about my response to it that does. Does that make sense? None of the fruits and everything that we speak about, Paul emphasizes it too. None of the things that you and I talk about in this world as Christians means anything if we don't have opposition to go against it. It holds no value. Why love those who only love you back? That's always a gut punch to everyone, isn't it? It's easy to love those who love you. See, when we speak about the power of God, you guys have to understand and acknowledge opposition. Power is only expressed when opposition is present. I, power isn't there when everything's flowing in the same direction. Why does a boat float? Because the boat and the water are in what? Opposition. You drill a hole in the boat, what happens to the boat? It sinks. The cross. Christ crucified. God's power. Why is that power? What's the opposition there? Because for the first time in my life, in my existence, I realize it's not about me. For the first time in my life, I realize that all this stuff that I'm trying to figure out to make my life better, to do what's right, to find these little things to practice and participate in, to make my life better, is all a lie. The God of creation, all sovereign Lord, sent his only son to earth, to die for me. There's nothing that I can do. I'm dead in my sins and transgressions. How much do you know that a dead person can do? I know very little. There's not much a dead person can do. That it's in understanding and believing that, that I'm actually saved and brought back into right relationship with him. I find my identity God. I find my identity through who he tells me that I am. I saw a clip of a movie and I want to say it over to you guys now. A question was asked to a man. He goes, who are you? The guy looked at him. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, who are you? I asked that question to you guys sitting in the pews right now. Who are you? Now, environment affects response. Many of you might go, I'm a Christian, Pastor Josh. But if I was to ask you just out and about in your daily lives, how many of you would answer that you're a mom first or a dad or a police officer or you're white or you're whatever? The honest answer, the honest thing that you guys need to position yourselves as Christians is, is where in the latter does the word Christian 
Christ follower, God-fearing human being, son of God, child of God, come into play. Your guys' hearts are going to tie themselves with what you identify yourself as. Every day, who you identify yourself as, that is where your heart's going to go. If the first thing you say is law enforcement officer, that's where your heart's going to go. If the first thing you say is mom, that's where your heart's going to go. And it's in those things that, I'm going to be honest with you, the enemy can trick you up and trip you up because you'll put your energy into those identities, finding yourselves getting weary and tired. Failing at times. Which then makes you think that you're a failure as a Christian. When all God is saying is, is you're my child. That's your identity. Don't think about, your purpose is to give God worship. That's why you're here. If you're a gas station attendant or a CEO at a Fortune 500 company, if you have one kids, you're on your third marriage, whatever the case may be, guess what? That's your identity. You're his child. You have to recognize the grace he has in your life every day, and it's from that grace that you actually begin to operate from a place that you probably don't know all so well, and that's a place of peace. Does this make sense to you? Where your identity lies in your brain, guess where your heart's going to go? This is why we need this. This is why we need fellowship. This is why we need the Word. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to remind us. The Holy Spirit teaches us truth. So leave here today with that question, who am I? We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I looked up the Greek for scum. Guess what it means? Ah. Scum. (laughs) You move the refrigerator out of your house, and if you find something that's been there for a while, guess what? That's you. That's Paul. Like, we're the scum. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen something sit for a while. Any of you that have kids, especially teenage kids, you go in their room for a while and ham sandwich that you know they took down like three weeks ago, still sitting there, and it's actually morphed itself to the plate. It's starting to take it. Yeah, you guys get the picture. That's what Paul's sitting there saying. Like, we become the scum of the earth. So you're thinking that this is about us? This is about you as the leaders? That they're looking at you? Oh, you're so wise? Or No, you're down here. You're showing the world humility. You're showing the world Christ as Christ showed everyone else. Servanthood, right? Slave for the Lord. Finishing out here in verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. I love this because I think this is where Paul maybe felt a little bad. It's glad he said what he said. But you know what? I came down pretty hard on him. But he is saying, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, this goes back to the era in which we are in. You guys can have 55, you can have 10,000 YouTube pastors that you listen to. Okay, You have a a lot of different people. Guardians in Christ is what Paul's referring to in this. Different people that you're hearing exposition from, of the Word, all this stuff. Paul's sitting here and he's wanting to let people know that for in Christ Jesus, I became your Father through the Gospel. And what he's using here, as you see, is Father is not capital F, it is lower F. That your spiritual fathers, these individuals, your pastor, your elders, these are people that, as it says in Hebrews 13, 17, that you're called to submit to and trust because guess what we have to do? I actually have to give an account for you guys. Every one of your lives in existence, the Lord is going to play in front of me. And I have to give an account for how I shepherd you guys. You don't think I don't think about that before I come up here and speak or I interact with you guys? You guys know the shepherd's hook, the J? Do you know why there's a J on that? Like, it's not just for the handle. It's for those unpleasant times when the sheep are running away and that hook is actually called to go around the neck of the sheep to kind of pull them back into alignment. But every so often, though, you get a sheep that just doesn't want to listen. 
and it just wants to keep going its own way. And sadly, you're called to just kind of let it go. And if God calls for you to leave the rest of them to go after that one, you go and you pursue and you pursue. But we were speaking about it in men's group as well, why it's so essential to have people that are mature in the faith amongst other people that are still babies is, is, is that, yes, the shepherd is there and you have the dogs that are running around that are nipping at the sheep to keep them in alignment. And you guys remember the imagery I gave you as we're coming closer and closer to the Lord that we should be coming closer and closer together. But sheep will actually follow the sheep on the inside of the, the flock because they already know where they're called to go because they're mature. They've done this before. So the ones on the outside, maybe that are coming in, they're like, okay, I see the old guy there with the shepherd's hook and all that stuff and the dogs, but I'm watching these ones on the inside because they're just trained to know that they go from point A to point B. So they watch that and they go. That's what I'm trying to do in this ministry is to just raise people up to that sense of maturity. And then as people come alongside, it's like we're doing this together in the name of the Lord and, and that burden is even released and um, taken off of me. But I, in a sense, act as a person that could be perceived as a spiritual father, elders as spiritual fathers. So Paul's sitting there saying, if you go to church and you're amongst a local gathering, you're amongst a body of believers, you might have all these people that you watch on your phones and your computers. But there's only one or a group amongst the body that you guys are called to look at. And Paul even sits there and says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Once again, it goes back to the example that I gave when I was speaking about Brandon and Chris. You're actually called to imitate these people that are seen as mature in the faith. My life inside of church and outside of the gathering has to show Jesus. That's why I can't just appoint people as elders or whatever that just do good when they're here on Sunday. Like there's a component to where you guys, Grady, a young man, has to watch me and I go, Grady, you're questioning, wondering, imitate me, how to be with a woman, how to Paul's taking this on, not as a sense of haughtiness or pride, but a sense of accountability and burden. Like think about it. That's a big thing to say. Imitate me. He goes, for this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love. So Timothy, an individual that he raised up that has been imitating Paul. Now Paul is sending him off and he's wanting people to imitate Timothy, a person that he also is saying is his son, a son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, not good at imitating Paul. He's faithful in the Lord. So when there's question about character in Timothy, guess what? You can go to the Word. You can look at the life that he lives, to outsiders, to the church, and you can go, he is faithful to the Lord. He will remind you in, of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So do you see that alignment that he's making? How I live is based on what? What I teach. It's not about what he perceives or sees to what he thinks is good. It's what he teaches. And that's the word of God. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. And this is Paul making reference once again to them picking on him, saying, oh, he speaks so big in his writing, but when he's in front of us, he doesn't really say anything. Like the church is actually saying this stuff to him. So these people now are at a place where they're just thinking, he's not going to come to us, right? I'm just going to speak big and bad about him. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. He's being sarcastic there. We live in a culture that loves to do this. But true power is in God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Opposition. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So he's leaving it up to them in this letter. You're going to continue to do the things that you're doing and thinking that I won't come? If I come, probably be with a rod of discipline. Maybe having to remove people from a position. Or are you going to take the words that I've written to you, heed the instructions, and then allow me to come to you in a spirit of love? Does this make sense to you guys? We tracking along here? You guys getting context? So 
Next week, we are going to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I am going to let you guys know, this is, this is where Paul is really getting into some stuff. I was talking to Jelaine about it this morning too. This is, this is some deep stuff that we are going to go to God's Word as a body and unpack together. And I will say it to you guys, and I love you individuals that have always been able to come and do this. If you guys have a question about anything, you want to test anything that I'm speaking and preaching, I ask you guys to do that. I do. I don't take it in a way like, Don just doesn't trust who I am. If you come up to me, and if I know Dawn's not in fellowship, she's not in the Word, and she's just here once every five months, and I'm just popping in, and wait a minute, I saw you two pastor preach on that, and it didn't sound anything. He does, Josh doesn't know what he's saying. That guy, Josh, you're speaking wild stuff. That's not testing me biblically. You come to me in love. You come to me and speak to me. We go to the Word about it. We unpack it. Right? We sharpen each other. But I want you guys to know, as it says in, in Timothy as well, that you have a pastor that is laboring in the Word. And I am digging into the Word to be able to preach it and teach it to you. Okay? So I'm going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks for your Holy Word. Lord, I give you thanks for this gathering and fellowship and then putting up with my long-windedness as I like to speak your Word and teach your Word. But hopefully these are words that they just take to heart, Lord, as I know that your Word is power and it never um, goes out without effect, Lord. I pray the individuals when they leave here today, once again, the question that I want them to ask themselves is, who are they? And even the people that may be listening to this message um, online, who are they? And where does child of God come in on that list? Because wherever their identities and their mind are, that is where their heart will also be tied to as well. And you call for us to put you first and foremost in your life, in our, in our life, Lord Jesus, and to submit unto you in everything that we do. And it's in that that when we put you first, day in and day out, that no, we don't operate perfectly, but we do operate in a place of peace and contentment, Lord Jesus, to where we're not finding ourselves shaming ourselves day in and day out. So once again, I pray for peace of mind over the individuals here. I pray for blessing for them as well. Opportunities to be able to speak your word to people. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that I pray these things. Amen. Awesome. You guys have a good week.